Let us pray together. Father, You call upon us in Scripture to imitate the great saints, those who have gone before us in the faith, those who serve as a great cloud of witnesses to us. So, Father, we ask for the grace to do so today, that we may imitate the great men and women of of faith who have gone before us, who have put their trust in you, who have put their hope in you, who have obeyed you, even at great costs. Would you fill us with the same zeal for your truth, the same courage, the same love? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Because I am doing something a little different today, a little out of the ordinary, I want to explain myself. Obviously, uh, most Sundays I'm preached through a text of Scripture, and I think that's what pastors ought to do, uh, is simply work through uh, passages of uh, the Scripture. Uh, But we've also got a tradition here at TPC to preach at least one or two sermons a year. Uh, on church history. Usually we do that on Reformation Sunday or All Saints Sunday. Uh, We didn't do it this year. In fact, several of you asked me about that. Why didn't we get our biography on Reformation Sunday or All Saints Sunday? Uh, But what I've decided to do is uh, do it today uh, on this, the second Sunday in Advent. Uh, Now, why do we do this? Why do we pay attention to church history? Why do we study and teach church history? It is vital for us as God's people to know our history, uh, to know the people and events God has used to further His kingdom and His purposes. Certainly it's very easy for us to see how God worked in the history that is recorded for us here in the pages of Scripture because we have a divinely inspired interpretation of what God is up to. But we need to know that God did not stop working when the Bible was finished. God stopped writing the scriptures, but he didn't stop working in the world. God continues to work. The story of God's kingdom is ongoing. It continues to unfold. And we need to know that story. We need to know the story of God's people so we can understand our place in that story, our chapter in that story. We need to know the heroes and villains. We need to know the the triumphs and the tragedies. Now, certainly, knowing church history is not the same as knowing the Bible. It's not a substitute uh, for knowing the Bible. But if we know the Bible well, we will want to know post-biblical history as well. We can't help but be interested in post-biblical history. Think of this as part of your discipleship. To be a disciple is to know the history of disciples, the history of God's people. This is central to our identity. We can't know who we are without knowing our narrative, our story. And it's central to our mission. We can't know where we are going unless we know where we came from. So with that in mind, let us begin. You know, one of the great questions, one of the great burning questions of American childhood is this question. Is there a Santa Claus? One of the great burning questions of American childhood. And of course, the answer to that question, is there a Santa Claus? The answer is most certainly yes. Santa Claus or St. Nicholas was indeed a real historical person. Now, certainly all kinds of myths and legends and fun stories have grown up around Nicholas. But Nicholas was a real historical person. Over time, St. Nicholas came to be known as Santa Claus. He grew into the one we know today as Santa Claus. And we'll talk a little bit about how that happened. 
But it's important for us to know the historic St. Nicholas. There are a couple reasons for choosing to talk about Nicholas today. One is the very obvious reason that this is December 6th, which is the day the church has set aside to commemorate Nicholas. Uh, Saints' days are usually determined not by the saint's birthday, but by his death day. And Nicholas died on December 6th in the year 342. Because his day was obviously close to the date that the church had set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus, December 25th, uh, the two were uh, naturally linked together and intertwined. So one reason for looking at Nicholas today is this is his day. This is December 6th. This is St. Nicholas Day. Happy St. Nicholas Day to you all. Uh, the second reason for looking at the life of Nicholas today is the fact that the major themes of his life story could easily be turned into an agenda for the church in our day. His life teaches lessons, and they are just the lessons we need to learn. He is truly a saint for our time. And I don't just mean our time of year, though certainly he is a saint for the Advent and Christmas season. And in many ways, he is a challenge to our Americanized Advent and Christmas celebration. In many ways, he's a confirmation of our Americanized Advent and Christmas celebration. We'll talk about that a little bit. But what I really mean by that, when I say Nicholas is a saint for our time, is, I mean, he speaks to our age. He speaks to our situation. He speaks to our cultural context. When we look back at church history and we say, what are the lessons we can learn? Nicholas stands out as one who has much to teach us in our own day. Let me give you an overview of his life. And I want to point out some key lessons uh, as we go. Again, God uses history to teach. Uh, in Scripture, God calls on us to imitate the great saints. We learn by imitation. And what all the great saints do is they point us to Jesus as the ultimate saint, the ultimate holy one. Uh, we're to imitate the saints as they have imitated Christ. And we'll see this in the life of Nicholas. Nicholas was born around the year 260 A.D. to Christian parents in the city of Lycia in what was at the time a Greek region but is part of modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul had visited Lycia uh, about 200 years earlier. You can actually read about that in Acts 27. Uh, Acts uh, 27 tells us about Paul's travels in this area. Paul had apparently planted a church in this area. He had raised up a Christian community there. And Nicholas and his parents were descendants of those first Christians who had been converted by Paul's ministry. Nicholas grew up in the faith. He grew up in the church. At a very early age, he expressed a desire for ordained ministry. Uh, Nicholas's parents had been barren for many years before he was born. Nicholas was the son they had prayed for after years and years of barrenness. Uh, he was born when they were somewhat older. Uh, his parents actually died when he was still quite young. Apparently a plague swept through the city, uh, taking out his parents. And so Nicholas moved up the coast to live with his uncle where he continued his education. Well, uh, the nearby city of Myra uh, was probably the, the key city, had the largest and most thriving Christian community. The bishop of Myra died suddenly, and the city was looking for a suitable replacement, somebody with the gravity and the wisdom and the character needed to oversee a rather large diocese. Prayers and deliberations went on for days. 
Uh, the priests were meeting in the church for prayer and discussion. And one of the priests said he had had a vision that the first man to enter the church sanctuary that morning was to be their bishop. When young Nicholas passed through the doors that morning, uh, immediately the priest asked him who he was. And he replied, my name is Nicholas, I am a sinner, and I am your servant for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty good answer for a kid, right? I'm a sinner, and I'm a servant. The priest cried out, this man must be made our bishop, even though he was really just a boy at the time. We don't know exactly what age he was, but he was young enough to be called the boy bishop after he was ordained. In fact, he had never even been ordained as a priest, which is very unusual to, to move straight to being a bishop. He had been in training for the priesthood, but had not been ordained. They laid hands on him and made him their bishop. And again, he became known as the boy bishop because he was so young. Well, not long after he was ordained, Diocletian renewed his persecution against Christians in a last gasp effort to slow the growth of the church and restore the worship of Caesar and the prestige of the Roman gods. Uh, certainly the church had grown considerably by this time within the Roman Empire. And the emperor was feeling rather threatened by the presence of Christians. Christians served as easy scapegoats. Anytime something went wrong, it was just, you know, let's blame the Christians for this. Uh, and that's what Diocletian did. And so Diocletian, Diocletian decreed the destruction of all Christian churches, the burning of all Christian books, and the dissolution of all Christian congregations. Christians were excluded from public office in Caesar's administration. Christian soldiers were required to sacrifice to the emperor or face strict punishment. And Christians caught meeting together could be put to death. It was an empire-wide attack on Christians. Christians were not persecuted in every nook and cranny of the empire. There were a few places where the Christians were safe, but it was a widespread persecution. Nicholas, as a prominent bishop with great resources at his disposal, could have gone into hiding, as indeed many other Christian leaders did. But he knew that his parishioners would suffer even more if he just tried to save his own skin. And so he continued in his office and work as a bishop. And indeed, Nicholas calmly waited for the imperial soldiers to come to his house. He knew he would be arrested. It was just a matter of time. He waited there for them. When he was arrested, he was taken away to be tortured. Uh, he was commanded to recant his Christian faith. When he would not recant, he was tortured some more. And then he was imprisoned. Uh, this excruciatingly painful persecution of Nicholas and other Christians lasted for eight years. Uh, one of his earliest biographers describes it this way. This is from St. Methodius. As he was the chief priest of the Christians of this town and preached the truths of the faith with a holy liberty, the divine Nicholas was seized by the magistrates, tortured, then chained, and thrown into prison with many other Christians. But when the great and religious Constantine, chosen by God, assumed the imperial diadem of the Romans, the prisoners were released from their bonds, and with them the illustrious Nicholas, who, when he was set at liberty, returned to Myra. And I think this is really the first big lesson we can learn from Nicholas's life. Nicholas suffered persecution faithfully. He refused to stand down. He refused to compromise. He refused to burn that pinch of incense to Caesar. When his faith was tested, he was courageous. He was consistent. He was willing to suffer. 
And indeed, because Nicholas and so many other Christians were willing to suffer and even die for Christ, more and more of the pagan population came to be impressed with these Christians. They actually began to speak favorably of these Christians and defend these Christians. Many even became Christians. Now certainly we don't face this kind of persecution in our own context. We certainly don't face anything like this at the moment. But it's not hard to see which way the winds are blowing. If you look at the political trends, if you look at the cultural forces at work, it seems that there is a whole lot out there that is turning against faithful Christians. And I think we would be wise to prepare ourselves just as Nicholas prepared himself. We need to prepare ourselves for pressure, for trial, for testing. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak the truth. In many places in the world today, Christians face physical violence, even death for their faith. In fact, persecution at this very moment, persecution against Christians is so widespread. It's happening in so many places in the world. Many are speaking of a global attack on the church. Now, where we live, we're not facing that kind of persecution, thankfully. But we need to know that we have many brothers and sisters who are. And we need to recognize, too, that while we don't face that kind of overt persecution, that kind of life-threatening persecution, Christians in our culture are facing a different kind of persecution, which you could call paper cup persecution. The kind of pers persecution where you're ridiculed for your views, where you're seen as uncool or just out of step with the culture because of the views you hold and the practices that you uh, embody in your life. That kind of paper-cut persecution is not anything like the very overt and violent persecution others face. But that kind of paper-cut persecution can add up over time. And indeed, it can become a harbinger of greater persecution to come. I think God gives his people little tests often before moving them into really big tests. And with these paper-cut forms of persecution, perhaps God is preparing us for something greater to come. Like Nicholas, we must be prepared to suffer. We must love God's truth more than we love our own comfort. Because Nicholas certainly did. Well, when Nicholas returned after, uh, after having been imprisoned and tortured, when he returned to Myra after these years of torture and imprisonment, he was so disfigured that the people did not immediately recognize him. When they discovered who he was, they exclaimed, It's our bishop! Nicholas has returned to us. He's not dead. After all, Nicholas lives. Well, no, Nicholas wasn't dead. But he was wiser for having lived on the edge of death for so long. He was the boy bishop no longer. He was now seasoned and matured. He was wiser and greater than before, having passed through the fires of persecution. He was stronger and holier than ever. Not too many years after this, the new emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith. And in the year 325, he called a council, a council of churchmen to the small town of Nicaea. Constantine, now this Christian who is the ruler of the empire, summons bishops from all over the empire to come together to deal with the great doctrinal issue of the day. The great doctrinal issue that is tearing the church apart and threatening the unity of the empire. It was the doctrinal issue of Christ's deity. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he God-like or is he fully God in the flesh? 
So you had all these bishops like Nicholas coming to this opulent, magnificent summer palace of the emperor. Many of them uh, had limps or scars or wounds from having suffered persecution just a few years before. But now they came as the emperor's honored guests. Well, unfortunately, Arius was one of those guests. You may know the name Arius. He's one of the great bad guys of church history. Arius denied that Christ is fully God. He denied that, uh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He said he's the greatest of God's creatures, and he's a whole lot like God, but he's not fully God. He's not eternally begotten. And Arius had been incredibly influential his arguments and his reasoning resonated with people who were used to uh, the gods of, of, of Greek mythology. Uh, he had been very effective in, in spreading his point of view. Obviously, this, important, the, the, this issue of Christ's deity was very important theologically, absolutely crucial to the church theologically. Because obviously, if Christ wasn't fully God, he can't be our Savior. And the whole gospel begins to unravel. Only a divine Christ, only one who is fully God and fully man, can be our Savior. So this was a huge issue theologically, but it was also important politically. See, the ancient world was always searching for an integration point, a connection point between heaven and earth, between humanity and divinity. In the Roman Empire, Caesar had claimed to be that connection point. The Caesars were God-men. Uh, the Caesars were divinized, sometimes at death, sometimes even before death. Obviously, when Constantine became a Christian, that had huge political implications. No longer could Caesar or the state claim to be divine. No longer could the Caesar claim to be the incarnation of God, God walking on earth. But if Caesar doesn't unite heaven and earth, if Caesar doesn't bring God and man together, who does? Well, in part, Nicaea was called together to deal with that question. It was a political question just as much as a theological question. Nicholas was there at that crucial moment in church history. And Nicholas was certainly on the orthodox side. He believed that Jesus was the God-man. Jesus was the Word made flesh. In Jesus, God had become man. Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. He has uh, he has a divine identity and a human identity. And, and Nicholas would have been among those who confessed. Everything that Jesus did, he did as the God-man. In fact, Nicholas was already credited with keeping Arianism from spreading in the city of Myra, for valiantly fighting against the spread of Arian views in his own city. He protected his own flock from this deadly era. era. At Nicaea, the issue, issue would be hammered out for the whole empire. Well, of course, you had different spokesmen who got up and spoke their piece to the whole assembly, and that included giving Arius the floor as well. Well, Arius was giving his speech. He was delivering a very impassioned speech, denying the full deity of Jesus. Nicholas uh, decided he finally heard enough. This was blasphemy. It had to be stopped. Here's how one church historian describes the scene. The emperor was sitting on his throne, flanked by 159 bishops on his left and 159 to his right. Arius was presenting his views with great vigor and detail. As St. Nicholas observed the scene, the bishops listened to Arius in complete silence and without interrupting the discourse. Outraged and prompted by his saintly vigor, he left his seat and walked up to Arius, 
faced him squarely and slapped him in the face. Uh, according to other accounts, it wasn't just a slap, it was a punch in the face. Well, Constantine, even though he might have even secretly enjoyed this, he certainly sympathized theologically uh, with Nicholas, Constantine knew he could not have this. He had to maintain good order at the council, and so he did the only thing he could do. He had Nicholas stripped of his red bishop's robes. He had Nicholas hauled off to jail. And from there, we're not exactly sure what happened. It seems that history blurs into legend. The most common account of the story claims that Jesus visited Nicholas at night in prison, thanked Nicholas for defending the truth so valiantly, and freed Nicholas from his shackles in prison. When Constantine was told how Jesus had freed Nicholas, he went and begged Nicholas for forgiveness and allowed Nicholas to take his place again in the assembly. I don't know if that happened or not. However, Nicholas was freed. He was freed. He was allowed to return to the council, and he signed the Nicene Creed when it was produced. See, that was the great outcome of the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea condemned Arianism. It affirmed the full deity of Jesus, and it produced the Nicene Creed, which we confess together most Sundays of the year, along with hundreds of millions of Christians throughout the world. The Nicene Creed was the great triumph of orthodoxy coming out of the Council of Nicaea, thanks in part to the zeal of Nicholas and others like him. Now, I think this brings us to the second lesson we can learn from St. Nicholas. I am not, let the record show, I am not advising fistfights with heretics. I'm not saying you ought to slap someone you disagree with. Uh, we ought to treat all people with kindness, with love, with respect. I, I wouldn't say that what Nicholas did was a model for us in that way. But I do think he is a model for us because we do need to be valiant defenders of the truth. We need to stand up for the truth of the gospel. In our day, there is a desperate need for Christians who know their theology, who know their Bibles, Christians who can't articulate doctrine, Christians who are zealous and courageous in defending the gospel, even in the public square. We need Christians who can defend the truths expressed in the Nicene Creed. Maybe Santa compiles a list not just of who's naughty and nice, but who's Nicene or not. Hear that, kids? Maybe Santa knows not just when you're sleeping and when you're awake, but whether or not you're confessing the constantiality of the Son with the Father. See, I can't even say it. I do confess it, even though I can't say it right now. This is St. Nicholas, the great defender of the faith. The great defender of the faith. The one who defended the truths of Christ's deity. Truths that are right at the heart of the Scriptures and at the heart of the Gospel. We need to look at where the Christian faith is being attacked in our day. Where is the Christian faith under attack? And then we need to run to the battle there. And we need to speak winsomely and lovingly, but truthfully and courageously God's truth. We've talked about this already with, uh, in relationship to the uh, same-sex marriage controversy. Uh, and all of that, that's certainly one area where the battle's raging, where Christians need to learn to speak winsomely and wisely and truthfully uh, to the world. But there are other issues too. There was a headline just this last week. You might have seen this. This was in the New York Daily News. 
Uh, this was the day after the shootings took place in California. And of course, whenever you have a tragedy like the shooting that took place in California, you have a lot of Christians who say, you know, we're praying for the victims and we're praying for their families and we're praying that justice would be done. Well, this newspaper, the, the New York Daily News, put a bunch of these quotes on the, the margins, but then right in the middle, in really big letters, the headline read this, God isn't fixing this. As a way of saying, look, you know, your prayers are useless. We can't count on God's help in this situation. We've got to fix this ourselves. Your prayers aren't doing anything. Okay, what do we as Christians say to that? How do we defend truth against headlines like that? You could say, really, that's a theological issue when they say God's not fixing this. It's also a political issue. And if we are going to stand in the, in the tradition of Nicholas we need to be able to answer our culture's objections to the gospel. We need to be able to do that. We need to raise up a generation of Christians who can speak wisely and winsomely and truthfully and courageously to these kinds of issues in a Nicholas sort of way. We need to share Nicholas's zeal for truth and his desire to defend the truth. Well, in addition to suffering great persecution... In addition to being a great defender of orthodoxy, one of the other things Nicholas was best known for was his generosity. Nicholas was a man of great compassion. He was a man of great mercy, especially towards the needy. When his parents passed away, again, remember he was still quite young when this happened. Uh, when his parents passed away, he inherited a rather sizable fortune, uh, a family fortune. And he did not go squander it on youthful pleasures. Uh, instead, he gave it away largely. Uh, Nicholas was always ready to share with others, especially children. Uh, there's one particularly famous act of charity. You may even know this story. It involved a nobleman of the city of Patara who suddenly became bankrupt. Uh, the man had three daughters whom he wished to give in marriage, and each of the three daughters had found someone they would very much like to marry. But the father's bankruptcy meant he had nothing for a dowry. And in those days, in that culture, if you did not have a dowry, if a girl did not have a dowry, she could not get married. And so this man facing bankruptcy and unable to support his daughters resolved to sell them into slavery. He thought he had no other choice. Well, Bishop Nicholas heard of this situation and decided to do what he could to prevent it. He learned that this man slept with his window open. And so under the cover of night, he threw a bag of gold into the man's open window, uh, according to some accounts of the story. Again, you know, sometimes fact words into legend. But according to some accounts of the story, when he threw the gold through the window, uh, it landed in a stocking that was hung over the heart, uh, the hearth, as was uh, the custom uh, in that day. And he did this three times uh, on three uh, separate nights, uh, once for each of the daughters. And, you know, the first time it happened, uh, the man rejoiced over it. Now I have a dowry. Now one of my daughters can get married. And then it happened a second time. And you might be thinking, oh, this is just quite a coincidence. And then it happens a third time. And he thought, there must be somebody behind this. Uh, Nicholas had uh, acted in generosity in this way because he wanted to be anonymous. He wanted to keep it a secret. But the man was able to track down Nicholas and discover that he was the one behind this uh, extraordinary act of generosity that saved his daughters from slavery. And this is really the third lesson I think we can glean from the life of Nicholas. 
Uh, like Nicholas, we are to be gift givers. We are to share. We're to show mercy, especially to those in need. We're called upon to bless others. But it's interesting how Nicholas gave. What I read to you is just one key act of compassion, but there are many stories of Nicholas acting in this way. And Nicholas was always concerned to be an anonymous giver. That is to say, he took the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 seriously. He did not want his left hand to know what his right hand was doing. Essentially there in Matthew 6, Jesus says, whenever you give, give anonymously. Don't give to be seen by others so they will praise you and applaud you. Give, even if God's the only one who's going to see and know, give and be generous. Don't do it to be seen. Do it for the glory of God and the good of others. And Nicholas took those words seriously. He did not do his good deeds to be seen by men. In fact, Nicholas, of course, he couldn't keep these deeds secret. They eventually came out. Uh, and so Nicholas became known as the gift giver. He became known as the apostle of anonymous gifts. And I think there's a very valuable lesson here for us. And I think it has to do with a lot more than just Christmas. The Christian life should be a life of giving, a life of self-giving love, a life of sacrificial generosity, a life of gift-giving, and a life of thanksgiving. That's what the Christian life should look like. The problem I think a lot of us have is we only want to give if we're going to get credit for it if we're going to get recognition, if others will know what we've done and praise us for it. We want an audience. We want to be noticed. Why? Because of our pride. Because that recognition and that praise feeds our pride. But what is Jesus telling us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? He's calling on us to slay the monster of our pride. To be free from all of that. To be free from the need to get recognition and to get glory. Jesus says if, if you do your good deeds just for the praise of men, when you get that praise, you have your reward. There's nothing else coming to you. No further reward because you got what you wanted. You wanted people to stand around and clap for you. They did that. That's it. We need to do good without looking around to see who's watching. We need to be willing to be anonymous givers, to give anonymously and selflessly, to give from the shadows. And in this, Nicholas is a great model. Well, as with many great saints of old, Nicholas's memory was kept alive in the stories that were told about him. And as with many great saints, a lot of those stories got exaggerated, exaggerated beyond belief into myths and legends. Indeed, with Nicholas, it's often hard to separate fact from myth. Uh, there's one story that says Nicholas prayed against the temple of Artemis that was there in the city of Myra. As he was praying against the temple of Artemis, suddenly the altar collapsed, the statue of Artemis fell over, and the demons fled the place like a rushing wind. Whether it happened exactly like that or not, we do know that Nicholas had a lot to do with ending the worship of uh, the pagan gods and goddesses in his city. Whether it happened exactly like that, we don't know. Uh, but that's one story told about Nicholas. Another story says he raised three children from the dead after uh, they had been chopped up by an innkeeper. It was a time of famine. Uh, he trapped these three children, killed them, cut them up. He was going to sell their meat, sell their, their, their flesh as meat uh, during a time of famine. Nicholas... Um, came to him in the midst of this 
and stopped him and raised the three children from the dead. That's another story told about Nicholas. Another account says that he miraculously appeared to sailors. Remember, Nicholas spent his whole life on the coast, and so he interacted with sailors a lot. There's a story that he miraculously appeared to and rescued sailors on a ship who were caught in the midst of a life-threatening storm. Again, uh, you know, there's all these stories that are told. Whatever the truth behind them is, Nicholas became known as the patron saint of sailors and of the poor and of children. Indeed, the fame of Nicholas spread far and wide, especially after his death. In fact, it's interesting, in the Middle Ages, more churches were named after Nicholas than any other saint. Stories of his wonder-working abilities grew. Stories of his uh, miracles grew to the point where more miracles were attributed to Nicholas than to any other saint. There was more artwork, uh, more icons, and more paintings of Nicholas than any other saint except for Mary. Because Nicholas was known for giving gifts to the dowerless sisters, uh, people began to exchange gifts on his feast day of December 6th. Uh, sometimes they would fill stockings hung over the hearth with presents. Sometimes they would fill shoes uh, with, with little presents, especially for children. If people wanted to follow in Nicholas' example of giving a gift anonymously, when somebody asked, well, who is this gift from? They would say, it's from St. Nicholas. If you didn't want somebody to know the identity of the giver, you would just say, it's from St. Nick. Uh, Nicholas was relatively unique in the fact that he was a popular saint in both the Byzantine East and in the Roman West. Uh, he became especially popular in the Netherlands. And by the 1400s, people in Holland would uh, surreptitiously give gifts for children, especially in the poorer parts of their cities. And they would say these gifts were from St. Nicholas. The gifts would be given on St. Nicholas Eve or St. Nicholas Day. And, and this is a custom that then spread throughout Europe. And of course, the children wanted to know, well, who's giving these gifts? Where are they coming from? And so stories began to be told of St. Nicholas flying through the sky looking for children he could help and, and bless with presents. Now, it's certainly true at the time of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, uh, the liturgical calendar was reined in. Uh, the church's calendar had really begun to spin out of control. There were too many saints' days. Uh, and the reformers wanted to emphasize that all Christians are saints, not just a select few. And, and so having certain days set aside just for, for certain individual saints is problematic in some ways. And some of the more extreme Protestants were so concerned about abuses with the church calendar, they tried to discard the church calendar altogether. So, for example, the English Puritans who came and settled in Boston in the 1600s not only outlawed special days like Saints' Days, like St. Nicholas' Day, but even Christmas was outlawed. It was actually illegal in Puritan Boston to celebrate Christmas from 1659 to 1681. But not all Protestants went to these extremes. Uh, the Dutch Reformed, the Dutch Protestants were much more uh, lenient and flexible, and they maintained a lot of their medieval traditions after their Reformation, including traditions centered around St. Nicholas, or Sinterklaas, as he was known. And so even after the Reformation, St. Nicholas Day, St. Nicholas Eve, continued to be uh, a major festival for the Dutch Reformed Christians, and they brought their customs with them when they came to the New World. Uh, Dutch Reformed Christians especially settled along the Hudson River in New York and in Manhattan. 
Indeed, uh, it was a Dutch Reformed Christian who purchased Manhattan from the Indians. And the first church that these Dutch Reformed settlers built in Manhattan was constructed in 1642. And you know who they dedicated that church to? They dedicated, this is the first church built in Manhattan, uh, a, a Dutch Reformed church. They dedicated the church to the memory of St. Nicholas. Uh, the city was known at the time as New Amsterdam, but when the British overtook it in the year 1664, it became known as New York. But the Dutch culture and influence did not die away. In fact, the British and the Dutch began to mingle and mix there, and they mixed a lot of their customs. And that included customs around Christmas time uh, involving St. Nicholas. And so St. Nicholas became a much more prominent figure for the English-speaking Christians who were now settling in Manhattan as well. Uh, and so St. Nicholas Day continued to be a big deal every December uh, in Manhattan. Well, as the city of New York grew and became more and more of a cultural and economic center, the legend of St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, as he was now known, grew also. Washington Irving, a New Yorker, wrote a series of stories with St. Nick as a prominent figure uh, in the early 1800s. In 1822, a New York Episcopalian, Clement Clark Moore, wrote a poem for his daughter, "'Twas the night before Christmas." But he didn't make that poem up uh, just out of whole cloth. Uh, it was actually an elaboration on a story that had been passed along to him by a Dutchman uh, as he was growing up in the city of New York. Uh, because Nicholas, uh, because Nicholas's day was in December, so close to Christmas, it had always been easy for the celebration of St. Nicholas Day to blend with the celebration of Christmas, especially since both St. Nicholas Day and Christmas Day customarily included the giving of gifts. And so advertisers began to use images of St. Nicholas to sell their products to Christmas shoppers. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, by 1850, Harriet Beecher Stowe had written a book on Christmas in New England, lamenting how commercialized Christmas had become, how the true meaning of Christmas was being obscured. Uh, same kind of complaints we hear today. Uh, but certainly, uh, Christians all around the world today, in the East and in the West, link St. Nicholas to the celebration of Christ's birth. Now, what are we to do with this? Certainly some object to this connection between Santa Claus and Christmas because, as they would say, about the only thing that Santa has in common with the historic St. Nicholas are the red bishop's robes and the custom of giving presents to children. Uh, but I don't see any need to be so antagonistic to Santa, provided we understand who he really is. Now, certainly, St. Nicholas himself would be horrified at the thought that his memory in any way upstaged Jesus himself this time of year. That certainly is something we have to guard ourselves against. If Nicholas punched out Arius' lights for denying the deity of Jesus, I'm sure that he would not be very happy with those who put Santa in the place of Jesus today. But there's no reason why Jesus and Santa can't be friends. Indeed, they are Friends, we just have to remember their relationship. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Who is Nicholas? He is one of Jesus' disciples. And like every good disciple, like every good saint, he seeks to imitate Jesus, and as he does so, he points us to Jesus. 
The reality is Santa is going to be around this time of year. As I was driving to church this morning, I was trying to count out the number of Santas I saw, you know, right out, right, just basically a neighbor of ours has got about an eight foot tall inflatable Santa right out there. All right. Uh, beautiful, beautiful sight to behold. <laughs> Santa is going to be around this time of year. And I don't think we should reject that. I think we should enjoy it. I think we and our children should enjoy the fun stories that come with Santa but I think we should remember the best thing we can do when Santa comes up is to talk about the real St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, the defender of the faith, the caretaker of the poor, the Christian hero that he was. But we're told all the time we have to put Christ back into Christmas. And that's a good reminder. We do need to put Christ back into Christmas. Let's do that. But we also need to put St. Nicholas back into Santa Claus. We need to remember who Santa Claus is and where he came from. And rightly understood, this can be a great help to us. See, St. Nicholas reminds us of what Christmas is really all about. Our God is a generous God. Our God is a gift-giving God. And God has come to us in His Son to rescue us from sin and death. God came from heaven to earth so that man could go from earth to heaven. God has come to us and given Himself to us in the man Jesus. That's the good news of Advent. That's the good news of Christmas. God has freely given Himself to us. God is a generous God. And so let us now, in joy and in love, give ourselves to one another. Let us give ourselves away to one another generously as well. Let's pray together. Almighty God, who in your love gave to your servant Nicholas of Myra a perpetual name for deeds of kindness on land and sea, grant, we pray, that your church may never cease to work for the well-being of others, the care of widows and orphans, the relief of the poor, and the help of those tossed by tempests of doubt or grief. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.